Welcome to Woodland Church. Here is today's message. Um, I, I do have a little bit of bad news. We're, we're going to be switching gears here. Not today, um, but I'm thinking, I think I'm going to wait for the college students to come back because I think you guys have got spring break. So you're here this week. You won't be here. And then, so I'm going to preach on Joshua the following week, but then the following Sunday, I'm going to start a new series that uh, I'll just be honest with you, I'm just too excited to get into. And uh, as a pastor, uh, that's what makes life so exciting is the different sermon series. So I'm looking forward to that one, but we will, uh, this week and next week will be our last weeks in the book of Joshua. And if you have been following along, I will give you a brief summary of what has been happening. Um, I, I have shared this a lot, so many of you are probably aware of this. God's people were down in Egypt. Does anyone know for how many years? This is like Bible quiz time. 400. There we go. They were down there for 400 years. They were enslaved. And then Moses came, comes and God called Moses. Moses, I want you to lead my people out of Egypt and into the promised land. Well, they didn't quite make it to the promised land because of sin within God's people's lives. And that's a whole other Bible uh, preaching series there. But then the Lord raises up Joshua. And Joshua is the man that is going to lead God's people into the promised land. And so what we have been looking at in that book is how God has been using Joshua and leading God's people into the promised land. Well, they had crossed over the, the, uh, the uh, River Jordan and the Lord had split the waters and then they were outside of the city Jericho. And then last week we looked at how Jericho came down and we looked at that account and we looked at how the Lord had a plan to be leading God's people. It was a weird plan if you really look at it in the physical sense. God had called his people to march around the city for six straight days, one time per day. And then on the seventh day, he asked them to march around there seven times. And then they would blow a big ram's horn. And then the people shouted. And then the, all the walls came tumbling down. Uh, one thing I did not mention last week, Jericho is considered one of the oldest cities in the world, and there has been so much archaeological studies done at that city. And if you are fascinated by archaeology, um, they have done so much there at Jericho. Well, they estimated that around 1500 B.C., in, in that time period, there was a massive earthquake at that place, and they have seen the ruins of the walls. And, and this is just like, I, I forgot to mention this one last week, but I just thought that was just a very interesting fact that um, as, as these archeologists uncover things, um, you guys may not know this, but archeology span has never disproven God's word. And I mean literally never. It has only supported it. They have found like remnants of, of like little pieces that, that they can date back to some obscured king's name on it and that ties into scripture. So that's just a little side note, but our faith is not within archaeology, but I just wanted to, to just kind of share that one here. So we looked at how God had a plan. It seemed like a crazy plan, but God's people listened and obeyed to God's plan. And then the Lord did a mighty work. 
Well, there was something that we did not read in Joshua chapter 6 last week because I didn't want to go down that rabbit trail last week. We're going to go down it this week. In Joshua chapter 6, if you have your Bibles, verses 18 and 19 shares a little piece of information, and this is what we're going to be talking about today. Joshua 6, 18 through 19. But you, this is the Lord speaking, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction. Lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of, of Israel a things for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. As they were taking Jericho, God had warned his people, listen, the devoted things, I don't want you to be taking those things. And all the silver and gold that you come across, that's actually for the Lord. Do not take this stuff when Jericho falls. God had given them this warning in the midst of them coming in and conquering Jericho. And we're going to pick up on what happens. And the title of today's sermon is still in Joshua, but it's called Sin in the Camp. And if you turn to Joshua 7... I'm going to ask for you to stand, and we're going to read Joshua 7, 1 through 13. And you're going to have to be gracious to your pastor as we read Old Testament names today. Okay, so if you can pronounce them better, you're welcome to come up front. Joshua 7, starting in verse 1. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. And Achan, the son of Carmi the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and he said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about 3,000 men went up from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. Verse 5. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gates of Shebarim and struck them at the descent, and the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell on the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, he and the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads, and Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought his, this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all of the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? And the Lord spoke to Joshua. He said, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned, for they have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own 
belongings. Therefore, the people of, of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, concentrate, consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. Let us pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, today, Father, help us. Help us to, uh, to see the work that you desire to do within our midst. Father, I thank you for your word. Father, I ask that you would come and minister to us today, that you would speak to us, that you would, that you would challenge us through this account. Father, I praise you. I ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So Joshua sent out spies to go up to a small town and for them to report back what they should do. So these spies go up to this small town, and they look at it, and they realize this is a very small town. They have very few people here. Um, this is going to be a very easy conquest for us. Now, remember, God's people at this time, they estimated there was roughly a million of them um, that had crossed over the Jordan. Some estimates are like 2.4 million. Some are as low as 600,000. But God's people, this isn't just... 200 people living in Jericho now or that had just conquered Jericho. There is many of God's people here. And when they are taking the promised land, they look to the small town and the spies come back and they're like, this is nothing. Don't worry about it. So Joshua says, okay, let's just send up a few thousand men to go and conquer this town. Well, we don't get a lot of details, but we do see this taking place. They go up there. It does not end well for them. It's not easy. They start losing, and then they flee. And in the midst of that, they lose. Scripture teaches us 36 men died as they were fleeing. And they came back, and they reported this to Joshua. And Joshua is in distress. Joshua doesn't understand why this just happened. Joshua 7, 6 through 9, and Joshua tore his clothes and fell on the earth and on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, he and the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads. That's a sign of mourning. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their, their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land, they're going to hear of it. And they will surround us and they will cut off your name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? You get this picture that Joshua is completely confused on what just happened here. And this kind of makes sense because right before this, they had just taken Jericho. Probably the largest city in that entire place with massive thick walls. And the Lord had delivered Jericho into their hands just as what he had promised. And now, this small town, this little town, few people, they can't even conquer it. And Joshua 
gets onto his knees. He's before the Ark of the Covenant. He tears his clothes. He puts dust on his head, and he's saying, God, I don't understand what's going on here. I thought we were supposed to dwell in the promised land. Why have we lost this battle? And why are 36 men dead? And what is going on here? And not only that, Joshua is legit nervous and scared, which he very well should have been. The moment these other places heard about them losing to AI, they would have all have been saying, we can easily take these Israelites. So Joshua falls, and it doesn't make any sense to him. Joshua wasn't aware of sin in the camp. He had no clue. He did not know that there was a man in the camp that had taken some of the devoted things when Jericho fell. And what you see here is you understand that that's why Israel lost this battle. They go up to Ai, this insignificant town in reality as far as size goes, and they lose and they flee with their tails between their legs back home. But Joshua had no idea that someone in the camp had taken stuff. So, what happens? The Lord, he speaks to Joshua. And the Lord says, Joshua, you've got sin in the camp. You have someone in your camp that has taken devoted things. I need for you, Joshua, to find these things. I need for you to get rid of these things. These things I specifically told you, do not take the devoted things and that silver and gold, not yours. Do not take it. Well, Joshua starts doing some interviews, and he finally gets to the man, Anak. Joshua 7, 19 through 21. Then Joshua said to Anak, my son, give glory to the Lord of Israel and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Anak answered Joshua, truly, I have sinned against the Lord of Israel, and this is what I did. Verse 21. When I saw amongst the spoils a beautiful, beautiful cloak from Shinar and the 200 shekels of silver and the bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them, and I took them. And see, they are hidden inside my tent with the silver underneath so Joshua's doing these interviews, and he gets to Anak, and Anak crumbles. Anak's like, all right, I totally messed up here, Joshua. I took it. I took the devoted things. I saw them, and I wanted them. I saw the silver. I saw the gold. And I said to myself, I coveted them. I wanted them. So I took them. He confessed it. Well, the problem solved then. Right? I mean, this just makes sense. The guy, he came clean. He confessed it. You know, Joshua's doing these interviews. Let's just find out. He points to where this stuff is. He says, listen, it is in my tent. It is over there. Go ahead and take it. And then they, you know, they bring Anak in front of, of God's people, and he confesses there, and everyone cheers him, him on because Anak did what was right. He confessed his sins, 
They end with a big hug, and then the story ends. Many of you are reading your, your Bibles right now, and I see you reading on like, that's not how the story ends, Pastor. It does not end with a hug, and it does not end with a celebration. Verse 25, then Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all of Israel stoned him with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger, therefore to this day, the name of the place is called the Valley of Anchor. You probably did not see the story ending that way. And I share that because I think a lot of people read this account, and it's a major, major internal struggle when we read this. Because it doesn't really seem fair. It's like, well, this guy came clean, and I don't understand why there's all this judgment, and I don't understand why there's this stoning. But then some of you might be thinking, well, pastor, isn't this just the Old Testament God? Right? Like, like, Old Testament God's way different than the New Testament God. I hear people say that one a lot. Like, you know, that's the Old Testament. Those were different times. And once you get to the New Testament, God's totally different. He's, he's just Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 1. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it re remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your own di disposal? Why is it that you have contrived contrived this deed in your heart you have you have not lied to man but to god when when ananias heard these words he fell down and breathed his last breath and great fear came upon all who heard of it the young men rose wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him after an interval of about 3 hours his wife came in not knowing what had happened and peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. And Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last breath. When the young man came, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came amongst the whole church and upon all who had heard these things. That's a New Testament story. And I share that because this story and the Joshua account are extremely similar. Extremely, extremely similar. In, in the book of Joshua, they are heading into the promised land. They are taking the promised land. They are going to be God's people living in this land, dwelling in this land. In the New Testament, God is establishing his church. These are going to be his people. This is going to be his church. Both of these people coveted wealth, coveted it. Sapphira and her husband Ananias lied about it. And they died. And I, I share this because 
this is one of those accounts that I think a lot of people struggle with. A lot of people outside of the church struggle with, with, with simply reading this stuff because to them, they don't want to see a God that acts like this. They don't want to see a God that just ends people's lives. To them, that just doesn't seem fair. That just doesn't seem loving. That doesn't seem very kind. They, they have a hard time wrapping their minds around us. Like I said, to the outside world, they will read accounts like this and they will say, I don't like this. I don't agree with this. But these accounts remind us of the whole picture of God. And this is what I mean by that. See, men and women, us, I have seen, and I, I see this play out a lot, we struggle with understanding the whole picture of God. Most people love the God of love. Most people love that God. He seems nice. He seems caring. He seems super friendly. He seems approachable. But then the side of God that has authority, that has boundaries, most people don't really enjoy that. I, I got a picture up there. I call it grace and law. This account in God's word when they read Joshua chapter 7, if you are a law person, what I mean by that, you love the rules, you want everyone else to follow the rules. When you read Joshua 7, you easily read through it and you say, yep, they should have obeyed. God warned them, they didn't. Guess what? There's consequences. They should have done what was right. But then there's grace people, those who favor God's grace. They have a hard time wrapping their minds around this account. And I share this because I think this is a struggle that a lot of people battle. Law and grace. Law people, when you fast forward to the New Testament, if you've ever read the New Testament, especially the, the four Gospels, you will see Jesus come in contact with a lot of Pharisees. Now, Pharisees were, are law people. Law people love the rules. Oh, they, and not only do they love the rules, but law people love to make judgments about other people. This is who law people are. They, they, they tend to think of themselves as kind of good, and they kind of look at other people as, well, they're pretty much bad. They have, they have no grace for people who struggle with sin. They look at it, and they say, why are you struggling? You should not struggle. Stop struggling. Just simply do what is right. And the, the ironic thing is, is the law people usually have sin issues themselves, but they cannot see it, and they will not see it. And when you try to point it out to them, they get very frustrated with you. Uh, they don't want to, to see sin within their, their very own lives. And um, if you've ever been a part of a church that favors law, I'm really hoping and praying that our church never becomes that kind of church. Um, but there is, there is a flip side to this coin that we will get to. If you've ever been a part of a church that favors the law and looks at life through the eyes of the law, they tend to be very exclusive in their nature. These types of, of churches only allow certain people in. They don't really want sinners to walk through their doors. They have no room for it. Law people have a very hard time loving other people. 
they have a very hard time with remaining in fellowship in a church. Because they may come to a church thinking, oh man, this church is really righteous. They're really about following God's law and, and God's way. But then eventually they rub shoulders with people in the church and they realize there are sinners in this place. And then they got to find a different place where there's not as many sinners. Law people have a lot of struggles with that. But then there's a flip side. There's grace people. Grace people, you might be sitting there thinking, well, pastor, how can, how can grace people have any sort of issues? That just, that just seems biblical. Like, you know, we don't just favor God's law. We should be favoring grace because grace is the most important aspect. And, well, the problem with grace, and I'm talking about churches and people, grace people tend to have no morality at all. Uh, they think the Lord of heaven and, and earth is one big ball of love, and they don't really care to talk about obedience and abiding in what God has called his people to be. Before service today, I was talking with my buddy Mitch, and uh, there was a song, Mitch, that I had mentioned that this, this song seems to summarize grace people. You can... Oh, that one's loud. Might be loud there. Does anyone know this song? This is grace, people. All you need is love. We just need more love. If we can just have more love, we can fix this world. We can just love people better. You guys know this song. Okay. The younger people are all looking at me like I'm crazy. All right, turn it off, Mitch. Okay, younger people, there was this really, really famous band in the 60s called The Beatles. Might have heard of them. Uh, I think they've sold billions of songs and records, and you can, if you're on Spotify, you can look it up. But I share that song because grace people tend to live in that mindset. All we need is love. If we just had more love, and, and these law people and grace people, they tend to project this upon God. Law people look at God and they, they're like, yep, yep, he has every right to destroy and that is who he is and, and that's, just, that's just how things are. And then, and then love people tend to look at God and when they read stories and accounts like this, they have this internal struggle. They don't know what to do with this because, because we need to have a whole picture of who God is. God is the most loving but he's also just. And we have to always keep that in balance in our lives. And when we read accounts like this, we need to see this and say, this is who our God is. Is he a gracious God? Absolutely. Is he so loving that he sent his one and only son? Absolutely. But does our God take sin seriously? And the answer is yes. And, and I just think sometimes we can favor one or the other there. And we have to have the whole picture of who our God is. Sin within people's lives, within our lives, and I'm saying our lives, and I'm saying your life, I, I say this constantly, it's very easy to judge other people's sin. It's very easy to be looking outside and be like, well, look at that sinner and look at what they're doing. 
But for God's people, God's people are called to say, God, where am I at? Especially when it comes to sin within our lives. Because it's easy to make judgment calls. Law people love judgment calls. They want to make judgment calls about you and you and someone else. And, and grace people want to make like zero judgment calls. Like, oh, we'll just, you know, we can all just live in sin and God's cool with it. And it's like, God is not okay with sin within his people. He's really not okay with it. Our Monday night Bible study, we've been doing 1 John. I got to read some verses from 1 John. 1 John chapter 3. This is uh, 1 John 3, starting in verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or know him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever practices of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not Practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Romans 6, what shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound by no means? How can we who died to sin still live in it? I share this with us because God's people, us, his church, we can never take sin lightly in our lives. And I'm saying our lives, and I'm saying this specifically, because like I said, it's so easy to make these judgment calls about everyone else's sin. But it's rarely when God's people say, what about my sin? Yes, you are forgiven by Jesus. He died on that cross. He washed you as white as snow. He has wiped away our sins. But John warns us, like, are we allowed to just keep on practicing sin? Are we allowed to just continue to abide in sin? Are we allowed to just continue to live lives of just disobedience to who God is and what his word has called us to? And I just think we have to keep the wholeness of our God in our mind. He is gracious. 1 John reminds us we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. But his people are not allowed, are not called to be abiding in sin. That is, that is like, that is, as I look at the church in America, I just think, Lord, that is the church's biggest issue. Is that some churches allow all sin and they don't care. You want to be practicing sin, you want to be living a lifestyle of sin, there are churches out there that will say, well, those people, they can be leaders of the church, and they can be leading God's people. And it's like, that is the worst idea ever. But then there's churches that are like, they're so exclusive, and they're so, so like wrapped up in sin that they're making all these judgment calls upon like everyone else's sin, but yet the church itself doesn't get on their own knees and say, God, I have sinned. Lord, 
Lord, help me to not abide in sin. Help me, Lord, not to walk in sin. A mark of God's people is God's people hate sin. We're called to hate it. We don't want it in our lives. Now, are you going to screw up? Absolutely. Are you going to be sinning maybe later today? Possibly. But then we've, we have an advocate, is what First John says, who cleanses us of our sins. And we come back and we say, Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Father, Father, help me to turn away from that sin within my lives. And as I think about Joshua, it's like, there's, this is a clear warning to us. It's like, we have to take sin very serious in our lives. Very, very serious. It's not something that we dabble in. It's not something we're just like, well, you know, we'll just, we'll just kind of do this for a little bit. And, you know, God doesn't mind if I'm, you know, you know just, I just got just a little bit of sin and that's okay. And it's like, it's not okay. We have these warnings. And I'm not saying today that, you know, if there's any sin, you're going to walk out and you're just going to drop dead. And then we're going to have to carry you off and bury you in the back five acres there. But I'm just saying, like, God's word gives us these warnings. These, these are examples to the church for us to be looking and saying, Lord, I don't want any sin dwelling within my life. We have to take our eyes off of, off of, off of other people's sins. That's, that's my first warning to you. It's so easy to be going down that road. But for us to be saying, God, you are a holy God. We literally just sang that song, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. God Almighty, he is a holy God. We cannot abide in sin in our lives. And I want to I share this warning with you today, church family. Don't let sin in. This guy in Joshua, it said that he saw this gold, and he saw the silver, and he saw the robe, and he was completely honest about it. He said, I coveted it. I saw it. I desired it, and I took it. And when you, when you read God's word, this is like a separate sermon. I don't know if we got enough time, but this is just coming to me right now. As you see God's people, God's people, they will, they will see something. And they have to deal with it right then and there. When you look at the account of, of uh, King David, he saw Bathsheba. He could have... He could have ended it right there. If you do not know that account, he sees this beautiful woman taking a bath, and then he calls for her. But the moment we see the sin within our lives, I just think they're, they're like, is this warning? Like, say, put up some guardrails. Like, say, do not allow sin into our lives. Like, say, put some guardrails up, and when you see it, say, you know what? I am devoted to the Lord. God, I'm trying to honor you. I'm trying to be following you. And I guarantee you, church, he gives us strength. We don't have to abide in sin. We don't have to live in it. We don't have to walk in it. And honestly, it's the calling for God's people. Don't let sin reign in our lives. If you have sin in your life, go to the Lord today. Confess it to him. He'll, he, he will forgive you, but don't let it just linger in your life. That's the ultimate warning here that we get from the book of Joshua. Don't let sin into the camp. Don't let sin into your lives. Don't allow for it just to be freely coming in. And then just on the side note thinking, well, you know, God just loves me. You know, and, and it's okay. It's like, it's not okay. That's the warning that I think God's people, myself, 
That's what I have been dwelling on this past week. Even just in my own life, I'm like, Lord, I, I don't want sin. You have called me to be holy. You've called me to live a righteous life. Yes, we stumble. Yes, slip-ups happen. But it's like, God, I don't want any sin in my camp. I don't want it. I don't want it dwelling there. I want to be honoring you in all things. That's my challenge for us this week, church family. Get rid of it. Get rid of the things devoted for destruction, is what Joshua says. Get them out of our camp. Have nothing to do with them. But we do serve a God who's gracious to us. He forgives us. We confess our sins. He wipes us clean. He is gracious.